Please open your Bibles to the 24th and final chapter of Luke, Luke 24. And this morning, we will arrive at the goal of the gospel to this point. Jesus came, we celebrate his birth at Christmas, but he came with a purpose. He came to live a sinless life. He came to die. He does not stay dead And this morning, we will witness the resurrection is Luke's account. Glorious passage. And yet, in Luke's telling of it, um, not quite what I was expecting. I'll be honest. When all these three years we've been going through Luke, looking forward to chapter 24, looking forward to chapter 24, and much of my expectation was set by the apostolic preaching of the cross in Acts and through Paul's accounts in his epistles. And so I was expecting to land in 24. Yes, he is risen. And that's sort of going on. But I'd actually like to begin this morning by reading all of chapter 24. And I want you to pay attention to how unusual against those expectations it is. Jesus doesn't show up for a while. And when he does, it's incognito. And there's a large emphasis on the unbelief, the doubting, the hesitancy of the disciples. So let's read Luke chapter 24 in its entirety. It makes up three encounters. Um, The women going to the tomb, reporting to the disciples, the the, um, travelers on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus appearing to them and commissioning them. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told them these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. They did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, but 
how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen visions of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village which, to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathering together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. And this I myself touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieving for joy or marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Oh, Lord God, as we read this marvelous chapter, as we witness the triumph of the Lord of glory over death, Help us to see. Help us open our eyes to understand the scriptures. Help us to see what is there. To see your glory be changed. 
Help us to be filled with this same confidence and joy. Lord, thank you for not leaving your son in the tomb, but raising him for our justification. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, perhaps as we read through that chapter, you see some of what I'm talking about, about how this is not exactly what I was expecting. As I said, over the last three years, I've been looking forward, looking forward to getting to chapter 24, and there is glorious announcement here, but really, if you think of this as like a screenplay, the camera is actually on these dullards and and imbeciles, if you will, these, these... Broken, weak, doubting men as they slowly come to faith. The climax is certainly at the end when Jesus appears among them and commissions them. But we see them doubting and doubting and doubting with more and more evidence stacking up. That really is the focus of this chapter, which makes me wonder, why does Luke tell it this way? Turn, turn a few pages over to Acts chapter 1. Luke had plenty of other material. The answer isn't simply, well, Luke only told us what he knew, because in his introduction to Acts, he makes it clear he's well aware of much more material that he could have included in his gospel. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering with many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. So Luke is aware of many proofs, 40 days, many appearings, and he even goes on in the rest of chapter 1 to give a more detailed account of how Jesus was taken up. So Luke's Account and focus can't be explained simply because this is all he had. Now, Luke is intentionally highlighting this theme of the growing faith of the apostles. He's highlighting their unbelief. He's highlighting how slow they are to come to faith. So that makes me ask, why? Why why would he do that? That's the focus of the chapter, the, the emphasis. Now, Jesus is raised. The angel makes that clear. That is there as well. And to some degree, I think Luke assumes Theophilus is aware of that. That might explain partly why he doesn't make a bigger deal of it. If you remember chapter 1 of Luke, he writes his introduction, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write you an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been Taught The gospel of Luke then was written for someone who already had instruction, to some degree, in the events of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That also might partly explain why the emphasis is here. Bear with me a little further in introduction. Turn to Acts. I want you to see the contrast between what we see in Luke 24 and in Acts in the first few chapters. The resurrection in the book of Acts and in the epistles of Paul is the central event. It is the climactic event. It is the most celebrated and important event. And in the early sermons in the book of Acts, it takes center stage in the apostolic preaching of the cross. Look at chapter 2. The Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles. A crowd gathers, hearing them speak in their native languages. And Peter launches into this first sermon. Pick it up in verse 22. 
Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was impossible for him to be held by it. Jump a little further. Verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Then look down at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know for certain God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, you see the centrality of the resurrection in Peter's preaching. Turn, turn over to the next page, chapter 3. The second sermon, Peter at Solomon's portico. And again, the resurrection is center stage. No hesitancy, no doubt, boldness. Verse 14, let's pick it up there. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Verse 26, God having raised up his servant. Look at chapter 4, verse 2 and 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Verse 9, how do they summarize their teaching? If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, but by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man is standing before you. And I could go on and on and on through the book of Acts. Very different men we find in Acts. No doubting, no hesitancy, no slow to believe. They're bold, they're proclaiming this. And I think that's part of what Luke is setting up. I think there's at least three reasons why Luke portrays and focuses on these events. And I'll outline them briefly before we get into the text. The first, I think, is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. I made this point last week. It might be tempting to think that Christianity was created by men seeking for power, for control. We certainly are aware of other false religions, other false teachers who are accumulating for themselves wealth, notoriety, power, authority. If, if that's what you're trying to do, you don't spend an entire chapter showing that the last people to believe in the resurrection were the apostles. If you compare this with John's gospel, the Sadducees are aware that Jesus predicted he'd rise from the dead. That's why they set a guard on the tomb for fear that they would come and steal the body. And the apostles get proof after proof after proof, and even as Jesus stands among them, they're still doubting. Now, the, the gospel and Jesus' resurrection is an act of God, not a plan of men. And the spreading of this message is due to the historicity. And again, I mentioned this last week, that other religions, I think, to some degree, can exist if you separate them from historical reality. They can exist as systems of thought or philosophy. But, but Christianity, I think, is unique in that Paul says clearly, if the dead are not raised, go home, 
eat a cheeseburger, die, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There is no point. We have all men of the most to be pitied. The resurrection of Jesus is either a historic reality, which changes everything, or it's a devilish lie. And so Luke is emphasizing that reality. He's also making it clear the disciples didn't come up with this. That was what the, the Pharisees started promoting. And when the soldiers come in the other accounts and tell them about um, the, the angel that moved the stone, they say they paid the money and said, go tell people the apostles came, the disciples came and stole the body. So perhaps even Theophilus has already heard some of these reports. If he's been taught about Christ, almost certainly that teaching finds its conduit in some way through an apostle who reached him wherever he lives, possibly in Rome. But he may have also heard the reports that this is simply a story made up by the apostles. And so this telling, this emphasis of the account makes it clear. The apostles did not come up with this story. They were the last people to believe it. It, it, it brings emphasis on God and his work, working through what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, our foolish means, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. It pleased God to choose a method of salvation that is counterintuitive. It's not the way we would have planned it. The disciples weren't scheming and plotting. They were clueless. I think the third thing it shows is it takes the work and the power of God to bring someone to faith in this resurrection. You may have expressed to others the life of Jesus, his death, his resurrection. You may have shared the gospel. But really, and we'll see this in a few weeks, but what is the final solution? What, what explains the difference between the Peter and the 11 that we see in Luke 24 and the Peter and the 11 that we see in Acts? There's two decisive factors, and it's right at the end of Luke chapter 24. Go back to Luke 24. Read verses 44 through 49 again. I think you'll see them. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's the first piece. We see the evidence of that enlightenment as Peter reasons from the scriptures, quoting the Psalms extensively about the necessity that the Christ should suffer and be raised. And the second, if you keep reading, and he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And you are my witnesses to these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. And that's where Acts starts. There's Holy Spirit coming. What accounts for the difference of these men between Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1 and 2? Jesus opening their minds to understand the scriptures, and more importantly still, the coming of the Holy Spirit. You see, see, the Christian faith is not built upon some really great men. That's not the point. These are normal, ordinary, weak, frail, fallible men who the power of God has come upon. God gets the glory in that. Luke is highlighting their, their, their frailty, their weakness. That gives hope for weak, frail people like you and me, right? The difference is not, these are really smart. These are really determined. These are really focused, strategic, strategizing men. No, these are the last people to come to faith in the resurrection. But God's spirit came upon them. and The Lord opened their minds. 
And so in that light, let's, let's study this passage, Luke 24. We're just going to look at the first 12 verses this morning. Unbelievably good news. Unbelievably good news. We'll look at it in three parts. First, the empty tomb, then the angelic announcement, and then finally, the woman's report. Let's look at the empty tomb, verses 1 through 3. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they'd prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, Luke has set up this event at the end of chapter 23. Remember, the women followed Joseph of Arimathea. They saw the tomb where he was laid. They went home, began to prepare the spices to anoint his body. And then the Sabbath comes. And they obey God's law. And they rest. This, by the way, could be argued, is the final official and real Sabbath since its institution. In the New Testament, the church worships and gathers on the first day of the week. The Apostle Paul tells the church they're no longer to regard feasts and festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. So you could argue this Sabbath these women observe is the final Sabbath of the Old Covenant. And so these women, if you look at the setting, when does this take place? Luke gives us those details. Early, the first day of the week at early dawn. Literally just the crack of dawn, we might say in our vernacular. And again, we see their zeal. We see their um, focus and determination. This is not some half-hearted effort. As soon as they're able to see, they get up and they go. Presumably this is outside of Jerusalem. And they travel to the tomb. And who goes? Now, we're first introduced just as the women. But if you look down at verse 10, Luke gives us further um, detail Again, highlighting the historicity that inviting Theophilus to find these women, to, if he needs to interview them, to verify these facts. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women. And these women have been following Jesus since Galilee. Luke chapter 8 begins the second sort of round of Jesus' ministry with a sort of programmatic text. And Luke 8 says this, soon afterwards he went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. So it's a programmatic, this is what he generally was doing. And the 12 were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So these women have been with Jesus since his Galilean ministry. And their faithfulness and their love and their zeal here is highlighted, especially in contrast to the apostles and the disciples So when, first day of the week, who? Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, and others. And and notice how Luke tells what happens. There's two findings. There's what they found and what they did not find. So in verse 2, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So what the woman found perplexing. They get to the tomb, and they find the stone rolled away. And we talked last week about how the Jewish practice of burial had a two-step process. You'd put the body in a tomb, you'd give it time to decompose, and you'd come back a year or two later, and you'd gather the bones, put them in a bone box called an ossuary, but maybe yay big, and then you'd go bury that or put it in a catacomb. And this is an unused tomb. This is a fresh tomb, and you'd cover it with a stone to keep wild animals out, 
and to keep the smell in. And they get to the tomb, and the stone is gone. And that, that perplexes them. It's not what they expected. They are perplexed by this. The stone is rolled away, and they go in to look, and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So there's two unexpected things they find. They find the stone removed. They don't find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, again, these women's actions were not done in confidence in the resurrection. We see that. They don't go, yes, I knew it. He's raised. They're perplexed. So the woman's faithfulness, I think, is all the more notable in the fact that it surely was done in sorrow, in disappointment, in confusion, and anguish. It's the difference between these women and the disciples is not they understood. They believed what Jesus had said. No, they're perplexed when they find the body gone. The difference is in their disillusionment, in their discouragement, in their confusion, in their grief and sorrow, they are still faithful. It's also notable that Luke titles Jesus with this title, the Lord Jesus. Now, that's a very common title for us. It occurs 111 times or more in the New Testament. It only occurs twice in the Gospels, both after the resurrection. Lord Jesus is a title for Jesus occurs here and in Mark 16, 19. And so one of the evidences that Luke knows that we know this story is he's giving him the title and the honor that is understood to have come through the resurrection. We, we saw Peter say that through raising Jesus from the dead, he is, God has exalted him to the right hand. And even though Jesus was born Lord, there's a real sense in which he is shown to be proclaimed, installed as Lord at the resurrection. Listen to how Paul speaks of this in Romans 1. So let me say that again. Jesus at the resurrection is installed, proved, shown, evidenced to be the Lord. And the early church understood that. Paul, Romans 1, 3 through 4, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So the early church, Luke assumes and understands that the resurrection is the act by which Jesus is indisputably declared Lord. And it's when the early church begins calling him the Lord Jesus. 111 times in the New Testament, only after the resurrection. And that's in keeping with Paul's statement in Philippians 2, that therefore God has highly exalted him because he was obedient to the point of death and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So Luke, even though he's showing the, 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 the confusion and the unbelief of the women and the disciples, is still speaking to people who understand to some degree the significance of what's going on. This is the Lord Jesus now. He is raised. The body of the Lord Jesus was gone. So the women are perplexed. While they are perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. 
Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. Rise. And they remembered his words. So we move from the empty tomb to the angelic announcement. You see, the historical event is not enough for these women to put it together. They need divine revelation. They need instruction. And here again, we see the mastery of Luke as he crafts his narrative because both Jesus' birth and his resurrection are attended by similar events. We have angels announcing his birth, if you remember. We have unbelief to that. If you remember um, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, did not believe he was struck mute to the angelic announcement. We have women responding in faith, Mary and Elizabeth. We have people reporting the news of the angels, the shepherds coming and telling Mary what the angels told to them, angelic declaration of what's going on. So both at the beginning of the story, at the end of the story, angelic messengers announce the good news. People are terrified. If you've got one of those, those manger scenes, I've never yet seen an angel in those scenes that remotely looks like what would create fear. They always look kind of cute and cuddly. When angels show up, usually the first thing out of their mouth is, don't be afraid. There's a reason for that. They're terrifying in their glory. In the other accounts, the, the Roman soldiers are as if struck as if dead men when the angel appears. And the women here bow their faces to the ground in terror at this mighty angels, both of them that show up. Now, the text here doesn't introduce them as angels. It simply describes them as um, two men in dazzling apparel. And that should be a hint enough back to Luke 9 when Jesus goes up on the mountain, he prays, and he's... Peril shines white, but we get told for certain that they're angels by the men on the road to Emmaus. Look in verse 23. When they did not find his body, they came back saying they'd even seen visions of angels. So these are two angelic messengers. One of them speaks, and we get the first of a series of gentle yet firm rebukes in this chapter. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified. And on the third day, rise. The second rebuke is going to come a little later in Luke. Verse 25. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The third rebuke shows up in 38. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? I mean, make no mistake, this is, these are tender. The Lord loves these people. But there is correction going on. There is rebuke going on. They should understand. So here's the first in a series of gentle rebukes. The women are confused. They're perplexed. The angel, citing, well, not quite citing, but an echoing of the language of Isaiah 8.19 says, why do you seek the living among the dead? Which is to say, why did you think you'd find him here? Why are you looking for the Lord in a graveyard, in a tomb? In other words, they should have understood. Didn't he tell them? They point him back to this. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Literally has been risen. It's passive. The Lord God raised him from the dead. Now, there's the clear declaration. The Lord is not dead. He is risen. And next week, the cantata, I'd like to focus primarily on that important, critical truth and reality. Here, let us note, it is certain. An angelic messenger announces it. He is not dead. He is risen. 
But the focus of the text is why these women didn't already understand this. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. Now there he's referring back to, remember the women are introduced in 8.1, he's referring back to Luke 9.22, where Jesus said plainly, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Or verse 44 of chapter 9, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Or Luke 18, 32 to 33, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So Jesus has plainly, repeatedly, emphatically taught this. And as best as we can understand, these, these women, these disciples, just don't have a category for crucified, rejected Messiah. They just don't have a category for it. And Jesus taught them this. He repeatedly said this. They did not understand. But then there's hope at the beginning of verse 8. They remembered his words. And again, this is one of the reasons why we read and reread the Bible. The first time you hear something, it may not sink in. But these angelic messengers point them back to the things Jesus had said. And as they think about that, and they look at this tomb. All of a sudden, the pieces start coming together. The lights start turning on. They begin to get it. They remember his words. So the women are being faithful, they're being kind, they're being loving, they're being diligent, they get up early, and yet still, even with all of that, they don't understand, they don't believe, but hearing the angelic announcement, remember what the Lord said, they come, I believe, to believe the account. And in doing so, they become the first evangelists of what we would understand as the gospel, what I mean by what we would understand is John the Baptist was said to come preaching the gospel. Gospel simply means good news. But John the Baptist's message is the king is almost here. Repent. What we, this side of the cross, understand is summarized neatly by the angel. Jesus came, was delivered in the hands of sinful men, crucified, and on the third day raised. And these women then become the first New Testament gospel evangelists, if you will, as they pass this message on to the eleven and others. They get that extreme honor and privilege because of their extreme devotion, love, and diligence in serving the Lord. They get the, the angelic announcement. He's not here, he's risen. Remember how he told you from early on. The women bowed their faces to the ground in fear, but they remembered Jesus' words. Which brings us then to the women's report, verses 9 through 12. So this is hopeful. The women are faithful, they're diligent, they haven't quite put it all together. There's a gentle rebuke, but they do, they remember, the lights are turning on. They go tell the 11 and the others. Maybe, this, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll be picking up momentum here. Maybe more people will come to faith. No. Returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to the rest. Now as Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told them these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale. They did not believe them. 
But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So the women return, and again, they're continuing to be faithful with this great news. Who's the first people we need to tell? We need to tell the apostles. There's only 11 because Judas has killed himself. We don't learn about that till Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, they, they choose Matthias as his replacement, and Peter stands up and he records how Judas went and died. So there's only 11 left, and others, probably referring to other disciples. So the women continue in their faithfulness, they go straightway, and they report this to the men. Now we've got multiple witnesses. It's not a single account. You've got a number of women, three of whom are named, and others. They go to the apostles. Do the apostles receive their testimony? No. What do these women know? It's just an idle story. They don't believe. Again, if you're, if you're trying to start a religion, you don't paint your leaders like this. If your goal is to amass power, if your goal is to, to build up a power base, you don't have your first pope. Peter's not the pope, but he's later called that. Do things like this. This is the mark of historical accuracy. This is the mark of the genuine article, of a real witness and historical telling of an event. They reported all these things to the eleven and the rest, but they were not believing. They were not believing. They did not believe. Jesus had said it to them. And I think, in part, they had been sifted by Satan. Remember, Satan had demanded to sift them all. And their faith collapsed, and they ran, and they scattered. And we even get some hint in verse 41 about why they were so slow to believe. While they were still disbelieving for joy and marveling, we see the sorrow of, of Cleopas. In verse 17, they stood looking sad. They were disappointed. They were so very disappointed. Look at verse 21 on the road to Emmaus. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And there's something about human nature that when you've been disappointed, when you've been burned, what's the expression? Once burned, twice shy. They got their hopes up. They got their hopes up. And their hopes were dashed as they understood them. And so now, there seems to be a, well, I'm not going to get burned again. We won't get fooled again. And hesitancy. And it stems from unbelief. It stems from self-protection. There's a great irony here. The very act that so discouraged them was the act by which God saved them. It was they misunderstood what God was doing. It wasn't even that God had let them down. God had not let them down. He had saved them. And here, the best possible news is just too unbelievably good for them. They don't want to get disappointed again. They don't want to get hurt again. And so they disregard the testimony of multiple witnesses. It seemed like an idle tale to them. They did not believe. The text ends, though, with a note of hope. We're going to get to, we're going to eventually get from this low point to the book of Acts, to the apostolic preaching of the cross, to the bold declaration that God has raised him from the dead. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Here's the first notes of that. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, 
Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. He went home marveling at what had happened. So Peter gets up, and he at least thinks there's enough of the woman's report to merit further investigation. He runs to the tomb, rose and ran to the tomb. And then we get a detail that wasn't included up with the women. The women simply go in and were told, verse 3, they did not find the body of the Lord. Peter sees something, though, there. What's he see? The linen cloths. That's interesting. Because if you steal a body, which I think is what they thought had been going on, and in the other Gospels, the women initially conclude that the Romans had stolen the body, you're not going to unwrap the body and leave the cloth. You're going to want that body wrapped up. You're not going to want to become unclean by touching a dead body. There's no reason on earth why someone, if they were to steal the body, would leave the cloth. Now, Peter doesn't quite believe yet. Jesus is going to appear to him personally sometime between now and verse 34. Luke's not even going to tell us about that. He's just going to reference it. But at the very least, Peter is now marveling. The wheels are turning. He's he's starting to put this together. He's, He's not there yet, but he's marveling at what is going on. I mean, God is so good. These people are slow, so slow and faithless and, and unbelieving. And, and God, the Lord's going to be patient with them. He's going to be patient because he's patient with us. This is good news for people like you and me. I'm very comforted when I read these stories and I don't see these superhuman apostles. I feel like I'm in much better company when I read these accounts. Remember, Jesus prayed for Peter. He will be restored. And when he's restored, he will strengthen his brothers. The Lord will shepherd his flock. He'll bring them to faith. But my goodness, it takes a lot of work to bring them to faith, to believe this unbelievably good news. Now, again, Luke evidences that he understands the reader already gets this. He refers to Jesus as the Lord Jesus. And I want to draw your attention to one final point as we get ready to bring the worship team up for our final song. And that is this. The apostles were called upon to believe in the resurrection through the exact same means you and I were called to faith, through proclamation. And they didn't believe. Think about that. The apostles' first news of the resurrection comes from a report, news. That's how we heard of the resurrection, heard of our Lord's raising to life. They did not believe. Now listen to what Jesus says in John 20, 29. Jesus said to him, this is in the resurrection, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. This, this is a hard to believe message that, that, that a, a Jewish man was put to death as a criminal, crucified, dead, buried, three days later rose from the grave. Yeah, that, that is a... Remarkable, remarkable claim. And in our unbelief, in our fallenness, it is hard to believe. We, we see that here plainly. But we also see its, its centrality in the message. And so if you've come to faith, blessed are you who've believed and not seen. Luke wants us to avoid the error of these men. When, when God discourages, when you are discouraged with what God is doing, When God does things that 
foil your plans that go completely against what you expect and think he would do. You can grow discouraged. Don't fall away. Don't give up. God is good and does good. The very thing that they were stumbling over was the means of their salvation. So let us have eyes of faith to see the Lord is not dead. He is risen. And that is the most joyful news we can hear.